I invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation in chapter 3. We as a church gather with a sincere belief that God speaks to His church, speaks to us, through His Word. That He has given us revelation. We're not looking for new revelation. He has given us His complete Word. And we are glad to have it and thankful to have it. Because He speaks to us from His Word. That's why we try to use it. That's why we compare Scripture with Scripture to seek to understand what God says to His church from His Word. And since here in Revelation, our Lord Jesus addresses these seven specific real churches with a particular word to that church, to these churches, it's extremely interesting to see what He says to His church, what He expects of them, what He commends them for, what He condemns them for. Because we know that it is not only relevant or was relevant to those specific churches, it is relevant to us today in the 21st century to see what He says to His church and to learn what He expects from His church. We want that commendation, as it were, for doing the things that we would do right. We want His encouragement for standing for His truth. And we also want His warnings and His rebukes so that we will know what not to do and to keep from doing something or anything that would displease our Lord. And so I hope that over these past years, as we have looked at these individual churches at the beginning of each of the past seven years, or the past six years and this year, that we have learned many things about how to be a church that is more of what Jesus wants. More of what Jesus expects. More of what pleases our Lord. And that we would continue to strive to do that as we desire to please Him as a church. Now today, we bring to a close our look at the seven churches addressed by our Lord here in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, as this year we conclude our look at Dear Laodicea. Now, I've read to you this entire address from Jesus to Laodicea a few moments ago, and I remind you that we saw from verse 14 his description of the one addressing the church, that he is the Amen, that is the truthful one, He is the faithful and true witness of God and of Himself as the divine Son of God. He is the beginning of creation. That is, He is the Creator God. And we went from there to see His depiction of the church. Though they thought they were okay, He chides them for being lukewarm and not at all what they thought they were. They thought they were rich and had everything. But He says, on the contrary... You are not rich, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And because of their own hypocrisy, their own self-assurance, he says, you make me sick. Virtually what he said. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now you know that 
Laodicea had a problem with their water supply, that it was putrid and lukewarm. It was notorious for being terrible water. So Jesus is using the obvious illustration of what one would do when they drank that water. It would make them sick and they vomited it out. But he says, that's what you're like. Because of your own hypocrisy, thinking that you're so good when in reality you are not. We made the point that there are many churches like that in our day. Think they're pleasing God. Going about the motions and the lights are on and the air conditioner works. The parking lots are filled with cars. The pews are filled with people. But in reality, they make him sick. I know we've gone through all that. I can't go over it again as much as I might like to. But we went on from there to see not only his depiction of the church, but his kind declaration to the church. As he says in verse 18, I advise you, I counsel you. Imagine getting counsel from eternal God. And this is what he says. I'll tell you what you need to do. Buy from me refined gold, refined gold, true riches, which are the gospel truth of God and his son, Jesus Christ. White garments to clothe the sin and unrighteousness of yourself with the very blood of Christ. So that when God looks upon you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. So we are, as the Scripture says, clothed in His righteousness. That picture that we saw even from our reading that Joshua was standing before God in soiled garments, and God puts on him festal garments, white robes, righteousness even before God. And then he says to buy salve, that is the truth, that you may have true sight. Christians see everything through the eyes of the truth of God's Word. When we make judgments or discernments or what we do in our life, it is done based upon our vision given by the one who is the light of the world in his word. And so he says to them, by Isav, that you would have true sight. Today we continue our look at verse 20. We began with this last Lord's Day and we'll conclude with it today as we see the gracious supplication of our Lord to the church at Laodicea. Now we discussed last week what he says here, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now we took some time last week to point to the fact of what this text does not say. There is a continued mistreatment of this text containing even pictures and songs of Jesus knocking at the door. And he's knocking at the door of your heart. And poor, poor Jesus can't open the door because the latch is on the other side. And we made the point of how this paints a picture of a God that is totally weak and impotent and not at all. The God depicted in the scriptures as the mighty and the powerful God of heaven and earth. Time and time he's waited before. And what's he waiting for? You. 
So you are more powerful than God. This is the picture painted from this text. But we showed that the scriptures teach in such places as Ephesians chapter 2 that you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Dead. And so totally incapable of opening even the door of your own heart. Because you're dead. And so if Jesus is on this side of the door knocking, you're on the other side of the door dead. So there would be an eternal standoff. Jesus can't come in and you can't open the door. So what's the answer? Well, we saw from the scriptures that Jesus does open the doors of men's hearts. That even though you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, by grace, he made you alive. It is Jesus who saves. It is God who reaches down into the hearts of dead men and women and makes them to live. We even saw that passage in Acts chapter 16 where he did open the heart of Lydia to believe. It is what God must do. For if God does not save you, you will remain dead in your trespasses and in your sins for all eternity. I'm going to address this a little bit more in a few moments this morning. But from there we went on to see if that's not what the text says, what does the text say? We look at verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door. It does not say anywhere in this text that it is the door of your heart. It is the door of the church. It is that church in Laodicea. And we saw that in all the other churches that Jesus addressed, they had, he had at least some in there. Some people, a remnant was yet left in those other six churches. Some of them were good churches. Some of them had a lot of people in there doing the will of God. But this church had no one. He was outside of the church. So it was the door of the church. And the sad reality from the text is that he was outside of that church. He was not in there. He was at the door. For as we saw in our exposition last week, there were no Christians in the church. Now today, we pick up with the fact that he is not only at the door of the church, Not only is he outside of the church, but even despite that, he pleads with the church. He pleads with this church. We can't miss the fact that he is knocking at the door. He's knocking at the door of the church. He doesn't turn his back on them. Though they turned their backs on him, though they did not want and would not receive his truth, his word, though they thought they had all they needed. Get out of here, Jesus. Remember we said the keep out sign was up. Get out of here, Paul. We won't, don't want to hear your letter from Colossae. We have all we need. Despite those things, he knocks at the door. And pleads with the church. Is this kindness? Is this graciousness? Are not his actions magnanimous as we would say? Absolutely. And in every way. 
The fact that he doesn't destroy them instantly is a picture of his mercy. Rather, yet again, he sends word to this church through the messenger of the church. I stand outside your church and I knock. I stand outside your church and I plead with you to repent, to turn from your lukewarmness. It is a picture of his own grace, a picture of his own graciousness and his own mercy. I ask you, if you would, please to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 23. We see here in Matthew 23 a very similar plea, a similar situation and a similar picture as to what we have with the church in Laodicea, all the way to the end of the text, if you would, the end of the chapter. Jesus is standing there, and he says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children, together in the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. It is as if he has this same plea to the city of Jerusalem. The Jews who had so rejected him, rejected and hated his teaching, not all of the Jews, but certainly most of the leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees, so many of them, if not most of them, were so hateful of Christ. And even though they saw wonderful things and mighty things take place by his hands, things that could only be done by the very Son of God, the promised Messiah, they said, no way! Crucify him! His blood be upon us and upon our children. But yet, Jesus, knowing that that was about to happen, stands there before the city and says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would love to have taken you as a hen would have taken her chicks under her wing. Though they killed the prophets, that's what the text says, he's saying, though, uh, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you notice it's plural, not just something that happened once. It was a pattern, a pattern of them consistently rejecting the messengers sent by God. That's why he said in Matthew's gospel that the kingdom would be taken away from you. Because you kept rejecting the messengers that I said. You mistreat some. You stone and kill the others. And when the Son comes, surely they will respect my Son. But no! They rejected Him and killed Him. And here He says, You kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to her. Speaking of, again, the prophets who were sent to the nation of Israel by God. And they continually rejected His word 
and his commands. Now look at the text and see what he says next. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. What a picture he paints. A picture of graciousness. A picture of a loving heart. This uh, speaks of a hen that would give protection to her chicks. Protection and care and provision is all that God had ever wanted to bring. His consistent, constant care. And over and over again, they rejected it. Even as he says in the text, you were unwilling. Remember John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own would not receive him. You were not willing. All I've come to you, all I've come to you with, is mercy and grace and redemption. The fulfillment of those sacrificial that sacrificial system and all those bloody sacrifices that you have been taught for centuries. I've come to you with the fulfillment and the real sacrifice as those were just shadows. I've come to you with atoning forgiveness. But you don't want it. You won't receive it. You were, as he says in the text, unwilling. And so it ends in a picture of indignation and judgment, as he says in verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, empty. The kingdom will be taken away. But his heart was always that he would bring to them the offer of redemption. I want you to turn now, if you would please, to Luke chapter 19, as we see how Jesus puts this same thought here in Luke 19. Look down at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But look at this. But the citizens hated him and sent the delegation after him saying, We do not want you to reign over us. Who do you think that is? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to take you, as it were, under my wings. I bring you redemption, but you will not have this man to reign over you. Oh, Laodicea, Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open! But how does this end? We will not have this man to reign over us. Look down 
in Luke 19, if you would please, to the uh, end of this parable in verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Parallel passages teach that they will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Judgment of God for not having the Savior reign over them. Back to Revelation chapter 3. This is a similar picture. And I can't help but wonder even in this place. How many of you have done similarly? When time after time you have heard the gospel. Time after time you have heard the urgency of death and life. Time after time, you've heard about Lazarus and the rich man and heaven and hell. And you think to yourself, well, you know what? I've got too much to do still. I am not willing to give up my life and have this man reign over me. Some of you would rather or sooner go to hell than have Jesus reign over you. And yet, you're here again. And He graciously again says to you, I stand at the door and knock. Now though this is a picture of a church that has put Him on the outside by their own rebellion, by their own hypocrisy, by their own self-assurance and all of these things, He graciously pleads with them. Here's a church. It could not be that old of a church. John is writing around 90 A.D. How old could they have been? 60 years, 50 years, 40 years? And already they have spurned the truth that they had known in the beginning of their church. Rejected the sound teaching of Christ and the redemption that He offers men. They were apostate. They were dead. They made Him sick. There is no other church addressed by our Lord like that. You make me sick. And though you make me sick, I stand at the door and knock. And he says to them, open the door. Not the door of your heart. The door of your church. Bring back the truths that you had once known. Bring back the very redemption that I have brought to you, that was brought to you from the beginning. He pleads with them to heed His call. Open the door and I'll come back in. I have been one who has experienced some of this in my life as a pastor. Where I have gone to churches where there were 
very few who gave any evidence of Christianity, any life, any desire for holiness or godliness. But oh, what a difference. Just one or two godly people can make in a church. One godly, praying, holy man. One godly, praying, holy woman can turn a church upside down. I have seen in my pastorate churches, two in particular, that were dead come to life only to have the dead ones throw out the living ones. That happened. But yet for a moment, a handful, a few men and women who became touched by the gospel and the word of God, who had the Holy Spirit impact their lives with His word and His truth, were on fire and hot and living for Christ and praying for their church to be turned around. For their church to become a spiritual place rather than a social club. Which is what church is supposed to be. A spiritual place and not a social club. We gather to meet with the living God. That is what a church is to do. To worship God. We don't gather to fellowship. We gather to worship. And oh, I thank God for some of those, that handful of men and women. And I'll tell you this right now. This church was begun by a handful of men and women that came out of a dead church and wanted the life that they saw in the gospel and wanted the truth that they heard from the pulpit. Thank God for just one or two or a handful of godly men and women who hear Christ in the church. Now I want to talk about something. And I thought it would be appropriate. I've got no time, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've mentioned to you, and we mentioned and we looked at this last week, that men and women are dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And they cannot respond. Yet by the sovereignty of God, He comes and raises them to new life. And yet we turn to last week, and we mention here again today, such chapters as Matthew 11 when He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And he says to this church, I'm knocking at the door open. Well, wait a minute. How can they respond if they're dead? How can he expect them to do that? And what we have is commonly called the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God. He is the one who saves. He must do it or you will remain dead. But the responsibility of man. You must respond. How can I respond when I'm dead? You see that? But both are taught in the Scriptures. 
It's like so many other or some other concepts that we have in the scriptures. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And yet, in the scriptures, he reveals himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can that be? Will you please explain it to me? Because if you can, you would be the first one in church history to actually do it. Men come up with all kinds of silly things, like it's an egg. It's got a shell and a yolk and a Y. No, it isn't. This is the triune God. And there is no way that our puny minds can understand it or reconcile it. It is the way God says it is. So too, the hypostatic union. That Jesus is true man and Jesus is true God. True man is if not God. True God is if not man. The God, the man, two in one. How can that be? True God, true man. Yet that is how he is shown in Scripture. And so too we have this. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God is sovereign. But man is responsible. God is going to send you to hell when you stand there and say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I was dead and I couldn't respond because I was dead spiritually. That's not going to happen because you are responsible. Read Romans chapter 1. You are responsible. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Now my brother Ernie used to put it like this. And I like this because I like trains. I used to even work down by the, the trains when I was in the Air Force. And you'd stand there in between the train tracks. Of course, you'd make sure there's no trains coming. But you stand there between the train tracks. And you have a rail on the right or the left, depending on which you're looking, the left and the right. And they're both straight as can be, absolutely straight. Because they're ruled, they have a measure, everyone is exactly as wide apart as ever. It's one here, one there. They're not going to touch. They're separated. And they never touch. But if you look down the rail, far enough, they kind of come together. It's the way the eye sees things. That the further apart from you or the further away from you they get, they touch. And what Ernie used to say is, in eternity, they will touch, and you will know how it works. But right now, take my word. Take God's word. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You cannot respond because you're dead. God must make you alive, and yet you are responsible. And so Jesus stands at the door of this church. Let me in. And the wonderful thing is that in the sovereignty of God, He does save people. Maybe some heard this warning given from the angel, the messenger. And they did repent. They saw the seriousness of what was going on and they repented. We're going to talk about that as we close. But some might have seen that and took it to heart. And God used this very word in this dead church to wake people up and to save people by his grace.
Oh, I will say this, the church is gone, as are all of them. They're all in Islam land now. But who knows that what could have happened in this church for a brief time as God speaks so graciously to them for someone in that church to repent and to open to Him. Notice the text even says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, anyone, that one person, that one or two people, that couple, those families, we've seen this in in our own church. Over the years, God in His providence has brought into our midst those who are zealous for God. And it's so refreshing and so exciting. And we love it. And we keep praying that He will bring more. Anyone, someone, listen to what God says to His church. And so I say this, that the Savior of mankind is a loving Savior. He is a loving Savior. And we use the term as He used it in the Old Testament. He is a long-suffering God. He is patient. And He is a long-suffering God with His people. And this is what we see here at Laodicea. He is a loving Savior. He is not a harsh taskmaster. He comes in love. He comes in mercy. He comes for your own good. For your own redemption. This is the Savior of the Gospel. This is the Savior that we see in the Scriptures. And He gives them this kind, gracious, magnanimous offer of heaven itself. And that's what we see next. We see next, He offers wonders to His church. He's at the door of the church. He's outside of the church. He pleads with the church and He offers wonders to the church. Look what He says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, He says, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. The first thing he offers is intimacy. I will come to him. God will come to you. God will come to you. Intimacy. What a gracious and a wonderful thought. Do you realize how privileged we are? And he walks with me and he talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. The truth is, he is a loving Savior. And we are so privileged to have him in us, with us. We're so privileged to have him as a church in our midst. Intimacy with God. Think with me. Millions of people strive to earn their way to heaven. Millions of people work and constantly do things and sacrifices and cut themselves and do anything that they can think of to earn God's favor. And we have it. 
He comes to us. We don't earn Him. He graciously comes to us. Saves us. Makes us sons and daughters of God. What an amazing thought. Don't ever grow weary of the love of your Savior and the intimacy that you have with Him. What a wonderful possession, if I could say it reverently, is ours that we can intimately know the Son of God. He promises to be with us. He dwells with His people. What a privilege. But secondly, He not only promises intimacy, He promises familiarity. He says He will come to you and He will dine with you. Who dines with you? Who do you have over your house? You dine with those normally, usually, that you know. Those that you love. You trust that they will like your food or that you will like theirs. You eat it, but it is an act of intimacy to have people into your house and to be a guest at someone's house for food and to eat together. And this is a picture of a banquet where we would go and we would Dine. It's not just eat, it's dine with Christ. The word in the King James, I think, is sup and some of the other ones. It was the best meal of the day, like supper time, what we sometimes call dinner. But it was the best meal, the best time, the big banquet time. And that's what we would be doing with Christ. What a thought. And he will do it. He will have you at His table. The King of kings and Lord of lords will have you at His table. I have some friends who are godly, godly people, godly men and women. A godly man. A humble man. And I always find it so neat to go out to dinner with them. He just puts on a banquet, just is so happy and pleased to have everybody at this banquet. And yet we're talking about the Son of God, the King of Kings, who says that we will dine with Him. Imagine being with your Savior in this way. But then not only does He promise intimacy and familiarity, He promises glory. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. You see, he's talking about eternal life. He's raised from the dead the first fruits. And those of us who are with him in familiarity and intimacy and salvation will be those who will be with Him in glory. Where He is in glory, life after death. 
All of these things He promises to those who would but heed His gracious call. Open the door. Let me in. I promise you it will be good. Good stuff from our Lord for His people. I must hasten to close and point out what he also says in this text, and I mentioned to you that I would touch on it this week, and that is the very first word of verse 20. Behold. Behold, I stand at the door. For he is at the door of the church. He is outside of the door of the church. He is pleading with the church. He offers wonders to the church, but he's right at the door of the church. Right at the door of the church. And because of the sake of time, I'm not going to turn to all the texts I was going to, but I ask you to turn with me back, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, and this time, chapter 24. Chapter 24. Because the standing at the door denotes urgency. It's a picture of urgency could look at James chapter 5 and verse 9. It speaks about standing at the door in regards to judgment. But look here at Matthew 24 down to verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. He's talking about what is going to happen in the end times and his return. He's talking about perilous times. He's talking about end times. And he says, verse 33, So too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. Right at the door! It's urgent. It's something that's about to happen that is big and Powerful and mighty. He's right at the door. Now, if you would, keeping with the banquet theme, just turn over the page to chapter 25. Chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. No more getting in. No more access. Let us in. Open up. Verse 11. 
Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Jesus was right at the door. I mentioned a few moments ago in his plea to them that he is a long-suffering God. And most of you who are here have heard me say this often. Right in the definition, long-suffering is not the same as forever suffering or eternally suffering. It has a time limit. And Laodicea, he's right at the door. Repent! This is urgent. Urgency. Think with me for a moment. What if I were to look up and see right at the door the Son of God and the angels surrounding him with flaming swords of fire to bring judgment on a lukewarm church. And you look up and you look out these windows and you see him there. What would you do? Well, I think that that you would be a lot like King Belshazzar from Daniel chapter 5 when the finger of God started writing on the wall. It says... The king's face grew pale. His hip joints went slack. And his knees began knocking together. He's right at the door. Right there. I think we would all start shaking and quaking. But the reality is people... Thankfully, He is not out there. He is here in our midst. And we must always keep that in mind when we gather together. That we come to meet with that God who is God. The true, eternal Son of God is the one that we worship and the one that we have seen time and time again from this book of Revelation who says in chapter 1 that He is in the midst of His church. I'm glad He's not outside. But oh, that we would act more like He was inside. That we would recognize and realize the awesomeness of the God that we worship. What a privilege to have the intimacy that we have with Christ. But what a shame that we don't take more advantage of it. What a privilege to know Him as Savior. But how sad that we so often sin against the light that we know. And so he says to Laodicea, Behold, I'm right there at the door. You better repent. Verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to that church, 
to the churches. And so we've gone through all seven of them. Do we have an ear to hear? Do we keep close to our hearts what Jesus has said to these churches? May we never be lukewarm. May we strive to be hot, which as we saw is a picture of a Christian who takes up his cross daily and follows him. It doesn't mean you're a super Christian. It means you're a Christian striving for holiness and godliness. May we, not only as individuals though, but as a church, strive to be hot. May we as a church learn the lesson that we saw from the church at Ephesus and never lose our first love. I love the doctrines of grace. I love the historic gospel. But to have that without love, I don't want to be the frozen chosen. I want the love of Christ in our church. I don't want to lose our love. I don't want to lose our first love. I want to be like the church in Philadelphia who keeps his word and honors his name. Read through these from time to time. Remind yourself. May we as a church be encouraged, challenged, rebuked by what Jesus says. But may we never forget what he says to the churches. May we, even as he says, have an ear to hear and learn and grow and live in the light of it. Let's pray.